friends. This is episode 30 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us again as we continue through Jesus's very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I can't wait to get to today's. It is by far one of the most fun studies to go through as we look at what have we missed in culture. A lot of times people come up to me and they say one of the things that they enjoy the most about the Bible Lab is learning all these things about language and culture that we've just missed, and it completely changes the way that we see the story. In no other episode will you probably have more than this one, so I can't wait for you to go through this journey. Also, there is a surprise guest in this episode. This guest is not a real person. Uh, when you hear me talk about some famous person, a famous name, you will actually need to picture in your mind uh, more of a plush toy, uh, but a very large plush toy that one of our members brought for me to be able to uh, do a real object lesson to show what's happening when Christ said, turn your other cheek. I'm so thankful that you're on this journey with us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. You guys ready? Here we go. Number one, never go to sleep angry. Stay up all night and plot your sweet revenge. You know you want to say yes. <laughs> Here, why, why are you laughing and raising a no card? I'm thinking about 85% of you participating. The rest of you are like, I can't lie to the pastor. I'm just not going to even hold up a card because it's yes. Number two, it is acceptable to retaliate as long as it's nonviolent. It's acceptable to retaliate as long as it's nonviolent. Ah, oh, look at this. 95% no. A couple of percent, yes, and the rest of you are maybe because you just don't want to say yes in front of your church family. Awesome. Number three, a punishment should equally fit the crime. A punishment should equally fit the crime. A uh, vast majority of you are saying yes. Okay, so I'm seeing about 90% yes. I'm seeing about 8% no and 2% maybes, because you don't trust me with these questions. <laughs> Number four, God's people were only intended to be combatants in the Old Testament times. God's people were only intended to be combatants in the Old Testament times. Well, look at you violent people here. <laughs> I'm saying about 90 some odd percent no. I'm seeing about, I saw about 5% yes, and the rest, the other 5% or so, are maybe. So, it's going to be a very combatant conversation, I can tell. Number five, I can never be perfect. I can never be perfect. Some of you are intimidated because you're like, I'm going to hold up no because I'm pretty dang good. Wow, the majority of you are saying, yes, you can never be perfect. Some of you, it uh, looks like about 3% of you are saying no, and the rest are saying maybe, because that's the only thing you ever raise up. Good. <laughs> Did I hit a nerve? 
I'm so sorry. Very cool. We are going to have a great time today. Because just like we've seen in the past, as you allow the scripture to explain itself, and instead of just having the plain reading of scripture, you actually have the educated reading of scripture by looking at the language, the culture, and how that language was used during the time of the writing and the time that people heard these words. If you add that cultural context, you understand things a lot more clear. And so today, as we continue into Christ's very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, between Matthews 5 and 7, we're going to take a look at what did Jesus really mean when he said, turn the other cheek. Let them have your cloak as well. Go the extra mile. And love your enemies. Ultimately ending with, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What did Jesus really mean by all of these phrases? And I guarantee most of us have used these phrases incorrectly in applying the actual meaning that the original hearers of Christ's first sermon actually heard. They heard something completely different, and it led them on a different course. So let's start out with Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, this first section where Jesus talks about three different ways to handle revenge. He starts out in verse 38 of chapter 5 by once again saying, you have heard that it was said. And everyone knows, uh-oh, he's going to mess it up again. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take, it a, and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right. If we could uh, censor out one section of scripture, this might be a good one, right? Because this is tough. This is a tough section of Scripture. In fact, one of C.S. Lewis's critics wrote that uh, C.S. Lewis did not like the Sermon on the Mount because C.S. Lewis had, at that time, not written extensively on the Sermon on the Mount. So C.S. Lewis replied in the way that he does best in writing and published a paragraph which said, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I do not like. In fact, it bothers me greatly. Because when I look at what Christ is calling us to do, it is almost impossible. So I don't like it at all, because I'm actually really good if I don't have to do this. And so let's take a step into this and have your comment and uh, question cards ready, because we're going to start at the very beginning of what Christ says here, and we're going to ask, what did Jesus mean when he said, do not resist an evil person? Does this mean non-resistance to evil? What do you think Jesus is saying here? Do not resist an evil person. What have you heard that that's meant? I would say it means do not get revenge. Okay, so it means do not get revenge. Over here. Yes, I, I thought it was interesting when you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Most likely when he made that comment, it was during World War II. It was? And so that was a big question about resisting the great evil. 
in Europe and Japan. Mm-hmm. Also, I have to admit, I have a hard time with this passage because of my self-image of a husband and father that I need to, one of, my, one of my roles is that of protection of my family. Yep. And um, so when evil men would come my way, I most likely will respond with extreme prejudice. Mm-hmm. Which means lethal force in, uh, in your language, right? <laughs> if, if need be, I, I, that's not yeah. my first option. Yeah, and it depends on just how fragile they are. I know. Back here, Marilyn. <laughs> Well, elsewhere it does say, resist evil with good, right? Yes. Is, is laying down your life a good? Hmm. I mean, Gandhi's witness, they, they were willing to lay down their lives. They chose to pay a price. Mm-hmm. They received violence at the hand of the British. Yeah. And it took a little bit of time for world opinion and conviction to come to the hearts of the perpetrators of violence and he succeeded (laughs) yes I'm so glad you you brought up Gandhi because he is a model to many of us of saying how do you find a non-violent solution to those who are taking away human dignity and that was his big thing human dignity How do you have a response that's not a mirrored response to the violence that's being hurled at you? I love that you brought up Gandhi. We're going to come back to that, Marilyn. As you look at his response, many of you know, you've seen the the very short film, Gandhi. Um, I think it was only four hours. Um, (laughs) The very end, he's shot and killed just before Gandhi dies. What's his last words? I forgive you. He's talking to the gunman, I forgive you. And then he dies. There's a different way. Back here. Careful, we're we're mixing metaphors here. There's a big difference between revenge and resisting evil. Or protection, as this gentleman provided for us. So we need to be keeping those separate in our discussion. I absolutely agree. Thank you. Back here. Oh, I don't know if I'm on the right track, but it's not the same like uh, don't give the pearls to the pigs. Hmm. Because don't, don't, don't cast the pearls to the swine. Yeah, yeah. because if you try, and I'm thinking about, about God. If the person is evil, don't want God. Yeah. Why you lost your time? Hmm. Just leave him. Great question. Great question. Can I show you something? Can I show you the language that's actually used? Because I think there's something that's lost in translation here. And so I'd like to show you what it actually says in Scripture. The word that's used for resist, which many of us look at, and we have to ask this question, well, did Jesus resist evil? Absolutely. Sometimes quite forcefully. But how did he resist evil? The word that's used there is, is anti-stenai. Anti-stenai, which means resist or stand against. And how it's used, because Jesus says, don't do this. Don't resist or stand against. But how is the word used in the common literature and language of Jesus' day? This was a military term. If you're going to talk about an army going out 
and standing against another army, it means you've drawn a battle line. You bring your force out and they will anti-stanai right there saying, we're going to battle. We're going toe to toe and I'm going to fight you force for force. And because our force is hopefully stronger, we will win and we will utterly destroy you. Anti-stanai. We're going to battle. I am standing up toe to toe with you. That's how the word's used. So if you apply this to what Jesus is saying, is he says, don't do that. Don't go to battle. Don't draw a battle line and say, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you because you're evil and I'm good. If I look at 99% of the issues we have, even within our own denomination, it's individuals who are saying, I must resist the evil in the church. I'm going to go toe-to-toe. Here's the line. You've crossed it. We're going to battle. Jesus says there's another way. In fact, we're going to see in the next three examples that he gives, he's going to be talking about what many theologians consider a third way. Because you have one option when someone comes up to you and does something against you. Your first option is to uh, retaliate in kind. Make sure that the punishment fits the crime. And so you've done this to me. I'm going to do that to you. And I'm tougher and I'm more stubborn and I'm more resilient. I will win. I may be uh, kind of laying down a little bit, but you're going to be out. That's one option. Second option is to be a doormat. All right, Jesus said. I shouldn't resist an evil person. Here, let me lay down so you can not only walk on me, but wipe off the mud on your feet right, right on my brand new shirt. Go ahead. Yeah, Christ called me to be a pushover and, and, and a pacifist. That's my second option, so that's what I'm going to do because I'm not supposed to go to battle with you toe-to-toe. Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's a third way. It's a revolutionary way to not only maintain but to grow human dignity. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are under the boot of Roman imperialism. God's promised people living in the promised land do not in any way enjoy the freedom of the promise. And because of that, they're getting more and more angry. If you think we have tense politics today, The time of Christ was even more tense because you added theocracy to that as well. God's promise said this is ours. How did God tell us to take this land? By force. That's why there's actually a group of Jews at the time of Christ known as the Zealots. There's two of them that are Jesus' disciples, Simon and Judas. And the Zealots were absolutely convinced God has called us to rise up as a militia and take the land God promised to us. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to share something with you that is so revolutionary. It's an idea you've never thought of. It's an angle you never thought of. It will not only give you what you want, it will give you more than what you desire. There is a third way. It's not about going toe to toe. It's not about being walked on. There's a third way. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Typically today, 
people have translated that as, well, I'm going to give you a second chance to hurt me, just to show you it didn't hurt me. Jesus says, you've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And he refers back to the Old Testament, which is talking about the limits to punishment. This is not saying that if you take out my eye, I have to take out your eye. It's saying you can only take out one eye if you've made me lose one eye. If you punch me and I lost one tooth, you can only punch out one of my teeth. It's a limit. There's a limit to retaliation and revenge. Jesus says, you've heard that, but I tell you something different. There's a different way. Instead of seeking justice of equality, let's seek justice which looks at human dignity. By the way, I'm really, really glad that God does not follow the Old Testament system that mankind had worked it up to be of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Because you all know, with all the mistakes that we've made and all the offenses we've made toward God, maybe even this week, if it really were an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, we'd all be blind and eating baby food in here, right? <laughs> Jesus says there's a third way. He says, right here, verse 39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Many of us have grown up believing that just basically means when someone hurts you, give them another chance. Right? Is that what we've heard? That is in no way what Jesus was saying. Nothing could be further from the truth of interpretation of this. Remember, he's talking about a third way. What details does he list here? There's some details in this verse 39. Which cheek? Why did Jesus say right cheek? The way you slap. Exactly, Togar. Now, I asked Mike to, to bring a special guest who hasn't made an appearance in almost a year. Mike, did you bring him? Oh, yeah, here he is. Hulk Hogan. Has a very special place right in the middle of your bed, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sorry, Terry. Something's come between you. But Hulk Hogan's here to help us out. We breezed by this verse a little over a year ago. So some of you may recall the initial uh, conversation on this. Remember, in Jewish culture, there's a clean hand, the right hand, and there's a dirty hand, the left hand. You don't do anything with the left hand. You don't even gesture like it's this way or it's that way. You're trying to help someone out. You never show your left hand to another person in Palestine. It's the dirty hand. It's the one you do all your cleaning after you do all your refusing. Yes, soiling, whatever you want to call it. You don't touch anything with your left hand. Not even show it. So, if you were to slap someone, you would only slap someone with your right hand. It doesn't matter how bad they've been, how angry you are, you would never use your left hand to strike someone. So, if you were to strike someone on the right cheek, it signifies something in Jesus' day. Hold them up a little higher. If you were a slave, which, by the way, most people were slaves. Um, most of us, by the way, are slaves, too. Because slavery in the time of Jesus is the same as credit cards today. 
So if I were to ask how many of you uh, are, are paying a credit card right now, and we saw the number of hands, you would see it's the same percentage as in Jesus' day that were, quote, indentured slaves. You would, you would work off the amount that you owe. So if someone is over you and they slap you as an inferior, and they slap you on the right cheek, they're using the back of their hand. It's a great disgrace, especially if done in public, in front of other people. They would slap you with the right hand on your right cheek. Back of the hand, boom. Now Jesus says, turn to them the left cheek now. There's a reason why. It's not so he can hit you again, because remember, he can't hit you with the left hand. If he's gonna hit you on the left cheek, he has to, he, there's no way you can do that. If you're going to hit somebody, you're going to hit them with the open palm of your hand, correct? Or with a fist. And if you come at a person and either slap them or punch them with a fist, you are telling that person at the time of Jesus, you are my equal. You're my equal. You are no longer my inferior. Now you're my equal. And I have to treat you like my equal. My human dignity will not be demeaned by your backhand. There's a third way. Turn the left cheek and say, no, 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 no. You strike me as an equal because I am your equal. You cannot take away my human dignity. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he says, stand up for your human dignity and the dignity of those around you. You're not subservient, you're a child of God. It is not you cowering, it's you standing tall and saying, I know who I am. I know where my citizenship is. You can try to humiliate me, but I know, as humans, we're equals. It doesn't matter how much I owe you. You're going to treat me as an equal. There's a third way. Jesus then goes on to say some words about the cloak. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. What have you always heard that that means? Give extra? If they ask for this, uh, well, give them something nicer as well. That's what I grew up with. What do you think this means? It's okay, just shout it out. Humble yourself. Give them, give them the best that you have. You have extra. Give them your extra. Is that what you've heard? It's not what Jesus is saying at all. No, you need to understand something that was going on in Jesus' day. Under Roman imperialism, Rome wanted all the land. And so what they would do is they would tax your property. And if you were a landholder, chances are it was in your family for generations. And then Rome comes along and says, you need to pay me taxes. And the taxes were between 25% and 250% of the value of that land. Exorbitant. Why was it so high? Because Rome wanted you to go broke so they can take over your land. They wanted that land. And so they would hire people like Levi Matthew as tax collectors who would pay um, the tax at the beginning of the month. Rome would say, this area, Capernaum, Levi, uh, we expect this much tax for the month of March. And so pay us this much tax. So at the beginning of the month, he would have to pay that tax. And then he would spend the rest of the month trying to collect at least that amount, and any that he could either collect legally or maybe not so legally, 
he got to keep. And the more tricky he was and, 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 the, and the more he squeezed you, the more he got wealthy. The problem is you cannot keep up this huge amount of tax. And you get yourself to a place to where now Rome says, okay, we're taking you to court. We're going to take your land. So come to court. We're going to take it. When Jesus says, if anyone sues you, everyone's like, yeah, I'm in the middle of a court case right now. He's speaking to the crowd. If you're brought to court, now you need to understand something. When he said the word cloak, if you were so poor that you no longer had any money, the poor class could do something. They could give collateral. And your outer coat, this heavy coat, was not simply something that you wore outside to keep warm or to look nice at church, whatever. This was utilitarian because once you were that poor and you didn't have a place to stay, it became your sleeping bag. It was your blanket, uh, your pillow under your head. It was the thing that helped you sleep within the elements. And so by law, what Rome said is, okay, if you're that poor and all you got is this coat, by law, we're not allowed to take that cloak away from you. So you bring it to us in the morning. We'll hang on to it. And at sundown, at closing time, come back. We'll give it to you. You can have it overnight. And then you got to bring it to us in the morning so we can hang on to the collateral. So Jesus says, if they take your cloak, you're in this horrible court case. I want you to do this. There's a third way. Because right now, they're trying to humiliate you. You're walking around without a coat. People are like, you're in a court case too? Yeah, yeah, I don't got my coat either. She says, no, no, I want you to do something. There's a third way. Instead of you being humiliated, you need to humiliate them. And so you walk in there, you give them the coat, and hang on, I got something else. Here's my underwear. And you strip naked. Jesus is calling people here. Read any commentary. He's calling the people to strip naked. Now, in today's Puritan society, we look at that and say, the shame that would be brought upon the naked man. No, start thinking like a Jew. In the Jewish mindset, the offense, the humiliation was not on the naked person. It was on the person that viewed the nakedness. You yourself were humiliated because in your culture, you're supposed to make sure everyone's clothed and well-fed. And by someone saying, here you go, and walking out of court naked, out in public, hey, everybody. Sorry, bad word picture. But <laughs> Jesus is saying, saying, you need to show the levels of absurdity that this community has come to, to allow you to go naked. It's a shame on all of them. Shame on you that you're making me naked because of your inhumane actions. My human dignity will be preserved. And the naked man walking, his dignity is preserved. It's the dignity of everyone around him that is lowered and shamed. Jesus is saying, you need to show this community what they are doing. Shame on you. There's a third way. Then we get to the next example where he says, go the second mile. What have you heard that this means? Go ahead, raise your comment cards. What, what have you heard it means, go the second mile? I heard the Roman Empire or the soldier can make you walk one mile. Yes. That's all. Exactly. So they can make you walk one mile. Why? 
Because uh, the Jews are their slave. Yes. So, it was a known fact that entire villages would empty out as they saw the Roman Empire marching soldiers their direction. Why? Because you could be inscripted into labor. Now, Rome had said, okay, you can inscript them, but you can only inscript them for one mile. They can carry your stuff. Now, they would have donkeys and camels and all kinds of mules that uh, would carry 75 to 90 pounds of supplies. But the soldiers themselves also had to carry their shields and their weapons and their own pack and everything. And so it's very tiring. And so what they would do is they would conscript, conscript uh, individuals that they found to say, carry this. We know one individual by name who was, who was asked to carry something. Simon of Cyrene. Carry this cross. Conscripted right there. Carry this. Jesus says, look, you've got three options. You thought there was two. You thought it was fight or flight. It's not just fight or flight. There's another way. You don't just have to run. and You don't have to say, okay, I'll carry it. There's a third way. He said, go the second mile. Now, you have to understand something. In, in the, the time of Christ, these groups of soldiers would have a centurion. He's over 100 soldiers. And the centurion was in charge of the discipline of his men. It is a known fact, historical fact, that these centurions would punish the men who were stepping out of line, who were using their authority unfairly or just being a jerk. Uh, chances are you'd have to pay a fine, so you'd have to pay some money if you're a soldier and you got caught by the centurion. Uh, per perhaps you would uh, uh, have to, one of my favorites in history, is stand at the centurion's door of his tent holding a large dirt clod until he said it was long enough. Um, you would have to go make things right. You could be sent back. You can be fired. You can go without rations, go without food. Um, very serious. They kept very strict rules. And one of the very strict rules are if you conscript someone, you can only ask them to, to walk one mile. So imagine the scene. You've said, okay, I'll carry your stuff a mile. So you're there, loaded down with the soldier stuff, and you're walking. This whole time, they're looking down their nose at you. They don't want to have a thing to do with you. You are their pack mule. You are subservient. Your dignity is way down here. You carry my stuff. You get to the second mile marker, and you keep on walking. Now, what typically happened is the person who's keeping track of the miles is the person who's carrying the stuff, right? So a soldier's typical experience is right at the mile marker. The person says, all right, here you go, drops the stuff, and they walk off. Imagine this scene that Jesus is calling people to do. You get to the mile marker, and you say, all right. And the soldier says, um, I think it's been a mile. Yep, I know. And you're continuing to walk. Um, well, um, you, you can put it down now. You don't have to carry anymore. Oh, no, I'm going to keep carrying it. Yeah, I've gone more than one mile. And you say it loudly. So other people can hear. Um, no, no, seriously, um, I, I can get in trouble. I can get in trouble here by you. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I'm going a second mile. How about that? No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. Just, just stop. Stop. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Whose human dignity has all of a sudden 
been restored. Who's in charge? Oh, I'm going to keep carrying it. And while I'm carrying it, I want to talk to you about something. I met this man named Jesus. Stop, stop. No, I'm going to keep going. And if you keep talking, I'm going to walk a third mile. Because <laughs> you need to hear something. This man named Jesus was the son of God, and here's what he did. Let me tell you about him. Stop, just, just stop. Just listen to me. I got something to say, and you better listen up, or I'm going to keep walking. Who's in charge? There's a third way. There's a third way. Jesus didn't say be a pushover. He said, find a way to restore human dignity. You're not a slave. And you're definitely not a slave to the enemy of this world. You are a child of God. Child of God. He continues on to the next section, which most people disconnect from this previous section on revenge. But I'm telling you, there is no, there is no subtitling uh, in Christ's sermon. This is a continued flow of thought. And when you see what he says here, you'll see the continued flow of thought. Because the person that everyone wanted revenge against was not necessarily his Jewish neighbor. It was the Roman imperialist. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48, Jesus continues, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? You know why that phrase made it in the Bible? Matthew wrote it. Someone talks about you, you remember it. He remembered that. Verse 47, and if you... Greet only your own people. What are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does this relate? Greg. Sounds very good when you're dealing with maybe oppressors that have laws that bind them. Yep. But that's way back then. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with societies and people that do not abide by any laws. Yeah. They will do what they're going to do to you and it doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. So how do we apply that to today? Mm -hmm. When you have people coming up to you that will, nowadays a Roman soldier would say, okay, let's go two miles. Oh, you're gonna go a third? Fine. Okay, mm -hmm. let's go all the way. You see, they'll keep on asking you and asking you. So yeah. there has to be a balance today. But I think you're gonna get there. I hope we're going to get there because that's the ultimate question, Greg. And it's the reason why this next section is so integral to the previous one. Because unless you learn how to respond in this third way with love, you're going to respond with conniving. You're going to figure out a way to push all the buttons of your enemy. And that's not what God is calling us to do by this third way. He's calling us to find the response, the third way that's filled with love. That when the person who is the enemy or the oppressor is in the midst of this experience of the third way, they are humbled by God's love, not humbled because you trick them. And so that's the ultimate question, Greg, that I hope in this next section we will get to. Back here. In response to that, uh, Greg, I would say 
We have a lot of misinterpretations. I would question, don't we have a lot of misinterpretations? I've seen as you've been presenting, Pastor Ice, some people holding their hands, heads. I just can't do that. But let's bring it modern day. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful book that's hitting the internet now about a hitchhiker that decided, 23 years old, to go around the world has gone through South Africa, he's Italian or something, I think, and different areas that we fear, people that we fear. And he has written about the hospitality, the unexpected hospitality. And I would suggest that the text is saying that we must invite the Holy Spirit to love each other as God loves us, even though we are not worthy of that love. Yeah. And and. American culture, if we bring it into slavery, there's a wonderful autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. The nanny or the caretaker was loved, so to speak, by the slave owners and the racists of the time. And when, if you've ever seen that movie, uh, they had the colored and the white drinking fountain, mm -hmm. and the men had gone out. They were going to draw the line, and they were going to drink from the other fountain, and they were going to be killed. But here comes Miss Jane Pittman, crippled, had nannied and cared and loved for all of these children, and she walks up, and the police stand back, and the racists stand back, and she takes a sip of the water, and she says, hmm, tastes like water. <laughs> and the people back off. And it, I believe like Gandhi and King, Martin Luther King after, that is what we're called to do. I keep hearing someone say, I could never love a terrorist like that. But this hitchhiker now in this book says, I stayed in South Africa. I stayed in places where I was not sure I'd wake up in the morning and found that they made breakfast for me and welcomed me because the stereotype of the whole class of people is not each individual, and that's what God calls us to do. Yeah, exactly. In fact, what Jesus, thank you, Thad. What, in fact, what Jesus is quoting, the modern idea of the, of the time in which he's preaching was they took uh, Leviticus 19, where it says, uh, love your neighbor, but they added something that was never in Old Testament scripture, and hate your enemy. Uh, that's not part of scripture, uh, but the rabbis and within the Talmud, they added this, it's okay to hate your enemy. Now, who's your neighbor? Jesus deals with that later on, doesn't he? There's a couple of sermons on it and an incredible parable of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, that's a story called the Good Jew, that Jesus changed the character to Samaritan just to tick the people off. Um, <laughs> made the hero uh, someone that was their enemy. Um, now, in the time of Christ, he says, look, you, you've heard that this is the common phrase. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Uh, and we have to ask, what, what's going on there? At this time, they defined their neighbor as only those who were neighboring tribes, so Jews only. Uh, even our English word today, neighbor, the first part, uh, ne, is actually the root where we get the word nigh, who lives nigh you, uh, the person near you, the person close to you. Everyone outside of your neighborhood of sameness is an enemy. And so much like today, uh, you mentioned terrorists and people of different faiths or different countries um, that are easily uh, demonized. Um, Jesus said, look, 
you're drawing battle lines where you don't need to draw battle lines, okay? There's a different type of love. There's actually a third type of love that I'm promoting to you. And I'm telling you, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. We're going to get to that in a moment. Back here. Um, before you answer the question about um, application in modern times, I, I'm, I've always been puzzled about Luke 22, 38. Mm-hmm. And that is when Christ, to me, seems to advocate selling the cloak or the purse for the disciples to buy a weapon if they don't have a weapon yet. Uh-huh. And so if you can kindly include that in answering the previous question, yeah. that would really be. Exactly. That's a whole other study that we're getting to. But once again, you need to understand everything within cultural context. If you, if you remove something from cultural context and from the context of that conversation, you get the Bible to say a bunch of things. In fact, different religions are getting their holy text to be able to justify. In fact, we as Christians, our holy text justified us to go on crusades and to annihilate people, um, to basically do the opposite of what the bulk of Scripture says. Um, We're going to get to that about what Christ is saying when he says, look, get yourself armed and ready. Okay, He is talking in that area. I'm just going to give you a little briefing. He's talking in that area about preparation for the time of trouble for them, which was within their lifetime. Something was about to happen within their lifetime. He wasn't looking at the larger context and saying, you know, all that stuff I said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, let's just forget it. I've changed my mind. I'm more violent now. Um, So we're going to get to it. But as you look, and if you're curious, look up all the Bible commentaries or ask Uncle Google uh, what what, uh, theologians believe that he's really saying in in that area because he's not calling um, for the violence as some people have advocated that that's what Jesus is calling. He's talking about, um, uh, about a mindset during the time of trouble, that great time of trouble for, for the Jews that was coming. It's right here and then here. Okay, go for it. But putting that into practice, we've had lots of examples of people who did that and surpassed. Desmond Doss. Mm-hmm. There was a man who refused to fire a weapon at the perceived enemy. And in the process became a great American hero. Mm-hmm. He's regarded today as an honored person, no matter what your religion might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Medal of Honor Yeah, winner, and he was a non-combatant. He found a third way. Exactly. He found a third way, exactly. My, my son, who lives in Boston, he's been there for about 25 years. He went away to go to graduate school. He was there last weekend told my wife and I that his first year there, he went to South Boston. My son is gay, Mm -hmm. and that was not a nice place to go if you're gay. Mm -hmm. And he said, he comes out to get his car, and there's a flat tire, and he goes, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And he said, looked over on, across the street, there was a man sitting on his porch, African American, Mm -hmm. and said, what's wrong? He said, I got a flat tire. he said, would you like to use our phone? And he said, what, invite him in the house. He used the phone to call the auto club or wherever it was. And he said, I met his family and so forth. And it changed his perception. Hmm. You know, that South Boston is supposed to be a nasty, violent place. Yeah. 
but this was not a nasty, violent man. Mm. And because he responded with love, yes. he completely changed your son's perspective. He did. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, coming back over here. Pastor, what you're saying is very nice, but I find it very difficult to put in practice. It's very, and very difficult, actually. So I have a silly question. You may want to dismiss it, but I need your pastoral advice. So this thing of turning Raul, the other... why do I feel like I'm being set up? <laughs> this thing of turning the other cheek, giving my <coughs> cell phone away or the cloak. I don't have a cloak, but I have a cell phone or a car. I could give that away, right? How many times should I do that? Is seven times enough? <clears throat> I'm very glad you asked that question because that's actually covered in Christ's words that we just read in verses 43 to 48. <clears throat> I want you to look at a couple of sentences here. He says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've been told. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I want you to look at just those phrases just for a moment. First of all, he says, not only do I want you to love them, which you know when someone does you wrong, maybe they're your supervisor, maybe your boss, Maybe a coworker, maybe a family member, maybe your neighbor. They do something, and what goes through your mind constantly? You go to sleep thinking about it. You get up in the shower. You're thinking about what you're going to say. And okay, I've got this meeting. I'm going to have this conversation. And here, they're going to say this, and I'm going to say, I know them because this is what I'm going to do. It's almost impossible, like you say, Raul. It's almost impossible to do this. Love them. That's why Jesus says the next phrase, pray for them. Jesus isn't saying, pray that they'll change to be more like you. Jesus is saying, as you love this person, you are praying for their best interest. You are praying for God's blessing to be poured out into their life. You are praying for their success. And Lord, I pray that you will bless them. I love this person who is persecuting me, and I sincerely pray, Lord, that you will come into their heart and you will make them like you and so that they will prosper and they will have salvation. Almost all the commentators that talk about this phrase, pray for your enemies, say it is impossible for you to continue hating someone that you are positively, consistently saying, Lord, bless that person. There's something that happens to you. Your brain literally changes. Your thoughts go from negativity to positivity, and you are asking God to positively bless a person that is cursing you. And as you do this, commentators say, it changes you. This active process of you praying for the positive good of someone who is wishing you evil. Jesus says, if you'll do that, you will have a shared experience. Look what he says. You do this that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You need to understand the people that heard this were in a culture that if you were a child, 
you were that family. And as you went out in your day, if someone found out you're the child of this landowner, this Lord of the area, they treated you the same as they treated the Lord. You were the Lord to them. That closeness of relationship, we don't have that today in our Anglo culture. But he says, you become me. And in becoming me, I want you to understand something. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good and send rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. We read this the same way that we read David's Psalms. Why do the bad people prosper and the good people suffer? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you as a child, as a representative of this landowner, this father, you are becoming like him. And what he does is he showers everyone with blessings. Everyone with blessings. And as a child of the king, you are becoming more like the king. And no matter what people do to you, you shower them with blessings. The more you pray for somebody and love that person through your prayer life, the more you become like the king, showering blessings. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm a child of the king. And this is what we do. Then he gets into the final phrase. After all of this, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. One of the most misquoted, misinterpreted phrases in the entire Bible. But before I get to that, we have a comment over here. Yes, I have much respect and admiration for Gandhi because he was a man of courage, and courage is a very rare virtue. And also, I respect and like his uh, doctrine of passive resistance. Mm -hmm. However, um, and also, he, it worked against British India, mm -hmm. no doubt. However, it would not work against Stalin or Hitler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus isn't calling us to cookie-cutter answers. He's calling us to be children of the king. And through that prayer process that he just spoke about, he will show you how to maintain or regain human dignity in a loving way, in a way that is revolutionary. He's not saying this is the one way, because you know as well as I do, once the Roman Empire heard about what they were saying about this second mile thing, like you can imagine they started making rules. Okay, look, here's what you're going to do so that we don't get ourselves sideways, because these revolutionaries are doing this. And so he's not calling you to a set course of action. He's calling you to a third way. There's a different way, and you, you pray your way through it. For sake of time, I just want us to take a look at this last phrase. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word that's used there in Greek is teleo. comes from teleos, which the word is not consistently translated as perfect. I have no idea why many of the translations use perfect. Because how it's used, and you've read it in other places with, uh, with Paul, it's actually used for end goal, or limit. And the syntax of that in this verse would mean, here's the goal set. Paul uses it when he says, I press on toward the goal, the prize in, in uh, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. He talks about this goal of perfection, not that I've already attained it, but I press on. The word teleos is there as well. It's the same word. It's the goal. It's the intent. You see the bar. What Jesus is saying in this section is, look, there's a third way, and the third way is loving 
passive activity. It's not angry, retaliatory revenge. There's a third way. And I will help you through it if you pray through it. And if you do it with a distinct flavor of love. And if you do this, you're not only becoming a child of the king, you're becoming more and more like the king. Because his goal, God's goal, is to have this loving response to people who are very angry and retaliatory on him as well. And so Jesus says, you can have a shared experience with God and a shared goal of God, this end goal of love, of replying to anger with love. Be ye setting this goal of love, even as your father has set this goal. He could easily wipe us all out. He could easily cause the flood 2.0. But he's chosen a different goal. It's a perfect goal, and it's only perfect because it's completely absorbed in love. And today, God is calling you not to be perfect in your behavioral modification. He's asking you to be perfect in your response to your enemies. And be perfect in the sense that you are looking at God's goal of loving everybody and you're saying, that's my goal too. Here's the goal he set and this is where I'm going. And that will change everything. As you step into these very difficult, very painful, very high stress situations, God says, set the goal of love and it will change everything in a revolutionary third way. Well, I hope that's given you a lot to think about this week. And I also hope that it gives you a revolutionary new way to deal with the real world issues in your life. I'm so thankful that you joined us. And I pray that you'll join us for episode 31, where we continue in Christ's sermon, where he talks about hypocrisy and how to pray. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.